Dr. Jonathan Cummerfeld is a 2010 John Monash Scholar and now a senior lecturer in the School of Computer Science at the University of Sydney. He did his PhD at Berkeley and he was also a postdoctoral research fellow working at the University of Michigan in computer science. To top it off, he's also been a visiting scholar at Harvard in the United States. Jonathan developed systems that use machine learning to enable computers to understand language, and he's published multiple papers in leading publications in his field. Jonathan has also advised several startup businesses working on AI-based products, including one that was acquired in 2018. I'm very pleased to say he's our guest on the Scholars Podcast today. Jonathan, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. So you've just started a new role at the University of Sydney. What led you to this new position? Uh, so, I mean, it was a quite a large search. So middle of the pandemic, my wife and I, uh, she, she's also, uh, she's a PhD in economics, but we did this joint job search looking all across the US and in Australia. Uh, mm -hmm. And then gradually narrowed it down. We narrowed it down to a, a few offers um, and then had to make a decision. And, you know, Sydney has a lot going for it as a place to live, as well as being a great university. And my whole family's here. And so, you know, we decided, let's go for it. Let's move, move back and uh, try it out. Uh, so it's exciting to be back here. So were you, you were born and went to school in Sydney? That's right. Yeah. And also went to Sydney for undergrad, so I'm really coming full circle. So where did you um, where did you go to school? So I was at Emmanuel School, which is a small uh, private Jewish school in uh, Randwick in the eastern suburbs, mm -hmm. and went there kindergarten to year twelve, uh, and then uh, to Sydney. Uh, though I, I should say I did miss uh, one year of school because uh, I spent a year in the U.S. when I was six. So my accent is not as Australian as you might okay, expect. There's a little twang there, Jonathan. There's something there. Yeah, it dates back well before the PhD. So it uh, <laughs> picked it up in the Midwest and it never quite went away. So when did you start to develop your love for computers and science? Was it when you were in high school or was it before then? So, I mean, I'd always been interested in computing and science generally. You know, my parents are both computer scientists. So, you know, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Um, I, I sort of grew up uh, being in user studies for things they were working on and just hanging out around the department, seeing what was happening. What were you, you were the guinea pig, were you? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, you know, they need to try out a new user interface and you know, they need another person. So, you know, it's another person to recruit. Yeah. Very nice. Um, but then, yeah, I mean, in high school was when I really, uh, you know, it was actually the physical sciences was what I was more interested in initially. And, you know, at the end of high school, I thought, you know, I really enjoy computing, but I want it to be that plus physics or that plus chemistry. And so that yes. combination. And so that was what I went into undergrad being interested in. Uh, all through undergrad sort of maintained that. And what was that? Did you do a Bachelor of Science? What was the, What was your undergrad? Bachelor of Science, yeah. Um, advanced Science at Sydney, uh, did honors. And actually even continued it to my PhD. So in the first year of my PhD, I was in a chemistry lab and in a lab in computer science. And I was working on a project, and this is at Berkeley, I was you know, working on the two of them, trying to figure out 
what direction I would go in. Yeah, so I, only after a year of that did I decide to go pure CS. So when you were, so just just back on that, when you were doing your undergrad degree, did you have any idea what you'd like to do, what your career was going to be? Yes and no. I mean, I wanted to be working on new things, so research, whether that was academic or industry. But I didn't know which which of those it would be. So you know, I did internships to learn about the experience being in industry compared to you know being a PhD student or you know doing yeah. academic work. And you know, those experiences you know led me to the decision that okay, I want to go to a PhD. Though it wasn't a foregone conclusion. You know, I um, I distinctly remember actually having dinner with some friends at the end of honors. I'd applied for a bunch of different uh, scholarships. Uh, but nothing had come had come back. So I, I was sort of sitting there and I was saying, you know, if, if this doesn't work out, do you want to do a startup? And with my friends, I was like, yeah, you know, that'd be cool. So that was the discussion. And I think a week later was when I found out I got the, the Monash. So, uh, you know, there's a different road out there that could have been followed. Mm. Um, but yeah, but this is the way it went. Well, I mentioned in my introduction that you've done some work with startups. Tell us what you can about what you've done there. Yeah, so, I mean, there, there is a lot happening in AI these days in industry. And so uh, I've worked with a few different companies and you know, typically they have a product they're building and they have some idea about how AI could improve it or in some cases be sort of a core piece of it. And I come in, you know, meeting weekly or sometimes more or less frequently with engineers to help them get it off the ground. Uh, so those specific products, uh, one was writing feedback. Uh, so you know, you're typing and it gives you suggestions on how to make your writing clearer. Uh, one was all about uh, coming up with names for businesses or products and things. <laughs> yes. It was a very niche kind of thing. But um, they had this interesting question. You, you want to do a trademark search as part of that. And so how can AI help you do that trademark search more efficiently than uh, hiring paralegals to look through pages and pages of material? Um, mm -hmm. And then the other one was a Siri-like interface, but specifically for banks. So, uh, you know, you open your phone, you open the banking app and you, you know, ask it to do things. And the banks don't want to farm that out to Google or Apple because they want to keep everything internal mm. in the bank servers so they needed their own, mm. own system so yeah so those are those companies and then the latest one i've been working with does helps lawyers with e-discovery and uh sorting through materials so in every case you, know, you can probably guess the sort of elements of ai that come in and you know i meet with them and help them get it working have you had an experience working with um chatbots yeah so i mean some of my work during the postdoc was in that space um I have generally erred toward you know systems that um, how do I put it are less about chatting for the sake of chatting and more about trying to achieve a specific goal. And so that's been more exciting to me. So I've done more work in the uh, systems, you know, querying databases and stuff like that. But yeah, there's there's a lot of cool stuff happening, and a lot of the work on chatbot systems, you know, pure chatbots, uh, crosses over and is still useful in other areas. So that's how I've come across it. I'm always a little bit suspicious of chatbots. I've used them, but I'm, I'm never really sure. They're what, coming. I'm never really sure where they're going. It's like, what is what is this? Yeah. Well, and actually, I have a project that we're just getting off the ground, which looks just that question and saying, you know, you talk to one of these systems. How can a person learn to understand that AI system? You know, how can they? build their own mental model of how it behaves and their expectations of when it will do what they expect or do something different. 
Um, and how, what can we build to help them build that mental model faster? One of the you know, sort of academic things that hopefully will will come out in the next year or two. Hopefully, we'll get it working. But yeah, uh, no, chatbots are super interesting, and, and I think they're getting better. They are getting yeah. better, a lot better. Yeah. But they still make crazy mistakes. I mean, everyone I've spoken to who's worked on them or you know, worked with them, in, or as a user or a researcher, has their example of something bizarre it did. But they're like, where did that come from? You know, so <laughs> yeah, we are we have not solved the problem by a long shot. So tell me about the scholarship. I'm keen. I'm keen to know what made you apply and 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 that entire process, sort of going going through that. How did how did you find that process? Yeah, I so I, you know I was clear that I wanted to do a PhD, and then was looking at options for funding. And at that point, the Monash was relatively new; it had only been going for six years or so. So you know there was the Fulbright, the Rhodes, this sort of well-known ones. And I can't remember who recommended the Monash to me, how I found out about it. Maybe I was just Googling everywhere I could look for what scholarships are there. How can I get the funding? please help. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and then, yeah, the application process, I mean, each one was, you know, somewhat different. The, you know, the Monash clearly had a leadership dimension that was greater than the others, yes. you know, and really an interest in that. And then uh, I remember the interviews, you know, sort of conversations. And well, in particular, so the first interview, I would say, was fairly normal. You know, a bunch of questions. I answered them. There was a bit of conversation. My second interview, I came out of it having no idea what had just happened or what my yeah. odds were. Oh, come on. You've got to tell us well, what happened. So, well, so I went in. You know, there were a couple of questions to start. And then we got off into this discussion about IP and um, the risks of research sort of you know, being invented in Australia or, you know, wherever, and then being stolen by other people. And like, how do you use that and actually turn your ideas into something that has impact? And, you know, I thought I answered in reasonable ways. I mean, in hindsight, I guess I did, but I came out of it thinking, well, I suppose the one thing I didn't mention, two of the panelists got into it a little bit, you know, arguing with each other uh, as part of the discussion. I was like, what is happening? Uh, Where am I? Yeah, yeah. Um, You know, did I do something wrong here? But uh, yeah, I mean, so it was, it was a, it was an engaging conversation, I guess. And and, uh, yeah, so I I went away and sort of waited. Um, And then when I found out it was, yeah, okay, wow. Okay, I'm, I'm doing it. This is happening. We're on. Yeah. And and what was your PhD actually in? What was the so, title? So I love uh, hearing the titles of the, the PhDs. Oh, the title. Let me read on my website and double check the exact wording. So, I mean, the general area is computer science and okay. the uh, specific sub area was um, natural language processing, which is this language for artificial intelligence. How do we make computers understand language and you know interact with people? The specific title was algorithms for identifying syntactic errors and parsing with graph structured output. Um, of, course, which, of course it was. You know, yeah, there's no jargon at all in that. I'm sure it was very intuitive for you. <laughs> um, so you know, it was a very, uh, what I would call core NLP. So, you know, the field has um, crosses over with other fields, as you'd imagine, both in computer science yes. and elsewhere and linguistics and uh, data science, machine learning and so on. Um, and this, pro- my, my work at that point was really mu- very much in the core of the field, the stuff that um, is in the textbooks, you know, that sort of thing. So looking at um, if you have a sentence and you want to represent the structure of it, so identify the nouns, the verbs, you know, uh, for this verb, which nouns are its arguments. You know, if I say, I like running, 
who's the one doing the liking? Well, it's I, which in this case is me. What do I like doing? It's running. So identifying that structure. And mm -hmm. so my thesis was on uh, looking at the systems we had and partly understanding where they were going wrong and then partly adding this specific extra ability, which most people, and to this day this is true, when they're in the field, most people will only look at a simplified structure. So in that example I gave you with I like running, they would say you have like, I is an argument of like, and running is an argument of like. But that misses a key thing, which is that it's not that I like running in the abstract or the concept of running or just like people in the world running. I specifically myself like to go for a run. So you yes. also should write down that I, the, the, in the sentence, is an argument of running, the word running. So there's like a third connection there. Um, and most people ignore that because for computational reasons, it makes things tricky. So part of my thesis was saying, well, how can we actually do the whole structure and really capture it the way linguists think it should be represented? Wow. <laughs> <laughs> how do you describe that to your mates when they're going, hey, Jono, what are you doing these days? What's your PhD on? <laughs> well... <laughs> Yeah, yeah. You know, there, is, there are the different versions of the pitch. I mean, I, I remember being told during a PhD, you need to have the version that you can say in, you know, the elevator pitch to that person. You need the one you can tell, uh, you know, your uh, grandparent who hasn't seen a computer. You need, you know, yes. you need every version of it. So yes. uh, you adapt. The one in the pub is a bit different to the one in, in yes. the conference. Uh, yeah, so... And what was it like um, living and studying in the US? Tell me about the university experience there. I mean, so I would say, I mean, I had a great experience, but I will say the US is probably too broad. Berkeley is its own little world in many ways. Um, I mean, it's sort of the you know most left-wing little corner of, of the country. And uh, you know, if I'd done it sort of in a rural town in the Midwest, it probably would have been quite different. Um, yep. But yeah, no, I had a great time. I mean, it, it's a there's a lot happening. Um, you know, what made you pick Berkeley? Uh, well, it's it's a fantastic place to study. I mean, there you know, if you look at the rankings and so on in computer science, it's consistently you know okay. ranked up there. And the group that I joined uh, was and is just really putting out fantastic, really exciting research. Um, you know, winning best paper awards at conferences and things, and really doing interesting stuff. So that was that was very appealing. Um, and yeah, so it, it also, when I initially started, you know, again, there was this element of chemistry, and it's very strong in chemistry as well. So there was that potential to do the crossover study, which mm. I started off in and then decided not to continue with, because at the time, AI methods really didn't didn't work well enough to be useful in chemistry. That was my opinion. Um, yeah. A lot has changed in the last 12 years. But yeah, at that point, uh, that was a big consideration. You know, I wanted to go somewhere where I could have ex excellence in terms of uh, advisors in both chemistry yes. and computer science. Yeah. How, long, you know, was the, how long was your PhD? Uh, six years. So, uh, which is pretty typical these days in computer science in the US, but you know, for people going to the UK or here in Australia, they're sort of like, what? Um, yeah, they smashed through yeah. it in, well, maybe three or three, three and, and a four. half, four, yeah. yeah, three or four yeah. years. But yeah, though in those six years, you know, I was doing teaching and taking quite a bit of coursework, actually. I think all up, I took maybe eight or 10 courses for credit and then sat in on a uh, bunch of more. Okay. So, 
you know, there's a lot of time spent doing all that, which is great. I mean, I learned a whole lot of interesting things and, you know, that was really useful experience, but it does stretch things out a bit. So you're back teaching, you're back in, um, you're back Mm -hmm. in Sydney, your hometown. What are you actually teaching? I'm keen to know what you do. What is your job? Yeah. So, I mean, I'm in this role that split uh, research and teaching. Um, Mm -hmm. Long term, it's, you know, 40, 40, 20 research, teaching and service. Uh, Mm -hmm. And, you know, the first course I'll be teaching is this sort of language AI uh, or natural language processing. So I'll be teaching that next semester. Um, In the short term, for the first uh, four years, I'll be doing mainly research because I have this DECRA fellowship that is a you know, great program from the ARC that you know, government funded. So I can focus on research. Uh, I'll be teaching just one course a year and working on building my lab and recruiting PhD students and honors students and all the rest, master's students. Uh, but yeah, uh, a lot of my time will be spent really trying to get that going. Uh, specifically, you know, we've mentioned a few different things in NLP, AI, language, so on. The direction I'm thinking of going now is systems where we consider the people, the user, and we say, okay, the AI has gotten quite a bit better. It can do all these things, but there are a few gaps. So how do we design our systems so that we get AI to do as much as it can and the person does just a little bit necessary to solve the problem? And so how do we build that sort of hybrid system where it's a collaboration between people and computers? Uh, so that's you, that's going to be the focus. So you mentioned DECRA. This is the mm-hmm. research grant. Yeah. Expl- explain explain to our listeners what that is all about. Right. So uh, the Australian Research Council, which is sort of the main research funding body in Australia, has a range of different programs, uh, and they target different types of research, different stages of your career as a researcher. So the DECRA is for early career researchers. And it provides funding for three years, and it's pretty substantial. You can define in your budget how you want to break it down. But for me, uh, it provides part of my salary so that I can focus on research. It provides um, two PhD students uh, for their full PhDs, uh, funding for equipment, travel, uh, having... Uh, students like honors students do projects as well and do you know, sort of vacation internship things um, and also having collaborators fly out from overseas to come and work with us in Australia. So it's really quite a lot of funding and really you know, sets me up to be able to kickstart the group really well. Um, so yeah, which is, which is great. And yeah, it's, it's sort of one program they have. Um, and the idea is I think you have to be at most six years out of your PhD, six or seven or something. Okay. Um, yes, so okay. it's definitely targeting sort of the early career people. So do you think there is a, a widespread understanding of what artificial intelligence is? Or people have heard of AI, but they've got no idea what it is. Um, it's, I mean, this is really changing. I think, you know, 10 years ago, it was definitely, or you've heard about it, you've seen it in the movies, uh, but you don't really know what it is or how it works. I feel like as people are seeing it more in their day-to-day life, that it's, there's a greater awareness. Um, obviously, when you interact with systems like Siri and Alexa, and that sort of thing, you see it, when you use Google Translate, um, you know, so all the, you, you hear about uh, autopilot and these self-driving car mm. things. You know, all that, there's AI there and people have a sense of what it can do. Uh, in terms of understanding how it works, I mean, 
you know, I'll give you a few books and courses I recommend. <laughs> no, thank you. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, it's, uh, I think there is an awareness of it. Um, also a greater awareness now of the risks and where it can go wrong, which is, is good. There have been uh, lots more public debate about that and consideration. Where can, where can it go wrong? Oh, there are so many different ways. Apart from the Skynet scenario with, you know, <laughs> Terminators coming to get you. Yeah, yeah, which, you know, I will say I'm not worried about that at all in the short term. So uh, <laughs> you can rest easy at night. But unfortunately, there are plenty of other ways where it can go wrong. So one very sort of in, intuitive or sort of easy to explain one is cases where companies use it to make decisions about how they interact with people. And to make the more specific, like, am I going to give you a loan? And I use AI to make a prediction of, are you going to repay the loan? Do I think you're, you know, what's your risk profile? Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, AI in this case is in many ways, just a fancy way of saying statistics, it's the same mathematical methods, it's the same ideas. Uh, there are some differences in the way the two fields approach problems, but broadly, we're using the same toolkit. And the problem there is you very easily risk reproducing biases that people have. So, you know, you learn, the, the system learns from past data and decides, oh, look, we're not going to give loans to these people. And you look under the hood, it's like, oh, they happen to come from this postcode. And you think, well, wait, why, why is it doing that? Is that unfair to particular demographic groups? So that's that's one type of risk that you see. And this comes up also, there have been a few programs, um, I don't think any in Australia, but certainly overseas for um, deciding things like sentencing in uh, court cases. You know, in courtrooms. Yep, yeah, exactly. And deciding, you know, should this person be allowed to go on bail? What should the bail level be set at? And again, that's a place where there's, you know, real risk that the system learns to reproduce some sort of human bias that is problematic. And it's problematic not just because obviously that's a bad thing, but because now it's shrouded in this protection of, oh, the AI did it, the algorithm did it, you know, it's math, it's all good, right? So, so people, you know, can still have these, uh, these biases or, you know, uh, unfair uh, discrimination cases where in the way people are treated, but it's shrouded in this uh, cloak of mathematics. Uh, so that's one, one type of risk. Um, which is very real. And, you know, people are working on that both from a, a mathematical perspective and also from a policy perspective. So there's definitely efforts in that space. Um, there are other risks with just mistakes uh, in operation. I mean, we've heard of a few cases with the self-driving cars or uh, cars that have some level of autonomy that have messed up and, you know, there's a crash. Uh, that's, you know, that's another possibility. And, another risk. So, you know, there are a range of ways it can come up. I was going to say, my, my thinking is generally, uh, in my research, one thing I want to do is say, well, how can we design systems so that people using them can understand the boundaries of what the system can and can't do, and really be better informed about when they can and can't trust it? Because that's the key thing here. You know, these systems will never be perfect. Um, you know, we're dealing in the real world, so we need to account for for that and give people the tools they need to interact with them. And what are the potential applications, Jonathan, of AI? Because it's you're right; it can be used literally anywhere. Uh, I imagine you know the big insurers, for example, when they're doing their policies of using it, maybe law law, law firms to de determine if they should take on a particular case or. Uh, bring a class action. So, like, wh where is it going? I mean, I think you you got it exactly right there. I think every field 
will be impacted by it sometime in the you know, coming years, um, simply because the, you know, the business or uh, you know, person who uses it will have an advantage and they'll you know, exploit that and be more successful in some way. Um, and governments are looking at using it too, because again, maybe you can make your tax system more efficient by more effectively identifying people to audit and stuff like that. There are just all these different places that it comes up. Um, and again, those risks I mentioned earlier also come up. So yeah, I think it's going to be everywhere. Um, I think it's in many of these cases, whenever you have to make a decision, that's a place where you could potentially turn to AI to inform that decision in some way. Um, mm. And, you know, for better or worse, essentially. Um, and we'll see. Then there are the stranger things. Like the, what we've mentioned so far is mostly just taking things we do already and having AI help us do them better or faster or, or something. Um, there are broader questions in what will it enable that we just couldn't do before. And there, I mean, it's hard to make predictions, um, but mm. people are working on things like, you know, translation between any pair of languages that's speech to speech. So you walk up and talk into this box and it talks to the other person in their language. You know, what would that do to the world in terms of if you really had something that could accurately do that and you could talk to anyone uh, in a really accurate way where you can communicate you know what that could what would be the impact you know it's hard to predict right the interpreters at the un would be out of a job <laughs> <Maybe>. <laughs> well so yeah actually it's very interesting that uh this particular thing I, i've uh you've been to talks and things people talking about what interpreters do and there it actually gets much more complicated because there's a lot of subtlety in yes. uh, you know speeches where people yes. use idiom and so on it's like well how do i you know, when they say that, that they're referring to this other thing, like, how do you convey that? So, yeah, in that kind of... Or using pitch or volume or, you know, pausing for effect, AI is going to have trouble picking that up, the nuance. You're right. Well, and it's also how do you express it in a language where you, you always hear these examples of, oh, we don't really have a word for that. You know, what do you do, right? Are you going to replace it with a five-word explanation? So, yeah. An, an asterisk. Yeah, right. See footnote five. Um, yeah, no. So, that there's there, – and that's the thing. There will always be cases where you need greater precision and there's more of a gray area in terms of what's the right answer. Um, but, yeah, no, I mean, we'll see. I've seen it being used – I've seen it being used in medicine. Like, there was um, a cool startup business – I had association with doing the PR for, and they were using AI uh, for IVF and and figuring out the the success rate of embryonic transfer. And you know that, that yeah, it's really taken off. It's amazing, but you wouldn't think you wouldn't think that AI could do that. But that's exactly how they use their intelligence. Yeah, well, and there are a whole lot of questions in medicine about you know should we do this test or that test, and uh, you know, AI can be useful there. As the, the other place, it's really growing. You know, there's this whole move in genomics, um, which actually my sister did. She's also a PhD, but in in, in uh, genetics and uh, computational biology. And so, one big thing she works on is using AI methods to help with um, patient diagnosis and. Uh, analysis of these huge data sets they have. I mean, you know, the genome is enormous, right? And so you, they're sequencing both the patients and the viruses and, and other things and doing things like sequencing the different cancers. So, you know, there's not just one type of liver cancer. There are, you know, a thousand, right? They have different genetic markers. And so applying AI to 
uh, interpreting that data as well. So yeah, it, it's, it's all over the place. It's amazing when you think of it, and it's, it, it does surround us. And, you know, punters like me probably just don't realize that it's AI. Yeah, no, it's disappearing. It's disappearing into the, the everything around us. Um, and it's computers. In the same way, computers are becoming part of everything. You know, every single thing in your house is is full of them. You know, your comp- car has who knows how many chips. Um, and most of those chips, well, many of them have AI components now. Um, yeah, no, it's just going everywhere. Well, Jonathan, it's been amazing talking to you. Thank you very much for your time today on the podcast. We wish you all the very best in the future. Good luck with your studies and your, your lecturing and your research. And we'll be following your career with great interest. You've been very generous with your time. So thanks for coming on to the show and all the very best. Thanks for having me.